Welcome to Broken But Not Divided with Andrew Youssef. This is a listener-supported production of Humanity Vivified. To learn more about Humanity Vivified, please visit www.andrewyusuf.ca. Hello, everyone. Uh, today we have a bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the Divine Eros. We'll be doing that with a dear friend and a colleague of mine from the Orthodox School of Theology, Father Deacon Simeon. Uh, how are you, Father Deacon Simeon? I am well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I've looked forward to doing this for some time now, so I'm, I'm excited. Yes, I'm, I'm glad internet connection isn't stopping us today, so that's a, a good start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Not much prayer happened after the last time, so. <laughs> yes. So uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself first? My name is Father Deacon Simeon. Um, I am married to my lovely wife for now uh, 18, going on 19 years. We have four children from 15 to 10, two girls, two boys. Um, I joined the Orthodox Church. We converted as a family in 2000. We can get catechumen in 2011 and were baptized on September the 16th, 2012. Um, which was a most joyous occasion. Previous to that, I was a pastor at a fairly typical evangelical Protestant Pentecostal mixing uh, community. Um, I went to an Anabaptist Bible college. I have had many different careers, many different struggles, um, but I found myself uh, in the Orthodox Church. It was it was an immense challenge becoming Orthodox. It meant leaving my position as a pastor um, because, well, we do things on Sunday morning. And, and so I, I couldn't actually attend uh, before I became a catechumen. So our first service together as a family was the service we became a catechumen. Um, mm-hmm. I had been working with my priest uh, for many months before that, uh, but it was a big step. It meant the loss of a salary. It meant the... Uh, I was unemployed, and uh, as you may know, finding jobs with your experience being pastor is rather different in this, uh, difficult in the secular world. Mm-hmm. People often don't understand what that means. And even to this day, you know, when people see my resume and they ask, well, what do you mean you're a deacon? What is that? So it it was a difficult challenge, and my family took it up, and we... You know, the lost income, and there were many struggles after that, but these last going on nine years now have been the most life-giving, the most affirming of my humanity, the most vivifying of my humanity. Mm-hmm. A little plug for you there. Um, yeah, the reference. I learned, I learned what it meant to be a human being in the Orthodox Church, and before that, I had some... I had an intellectual idea of what it meant to be a human being and what it meant to be a Christian. But coming out of the waters of, of baptism, I, I knew in the sense that I knew an intimate encounter with God and his people. And I felt myself intertwined with them. And that, mm-hmm. that sense of family and that sense of relationship has only continued to grow and deepen. Yeah. So 
my whole story, my whole narrative is kind of divided into two parts. There's the, there's the, uh, the pre-Orthodox and post-Orthodox. And I took my, my take, taking of my name very seriously. So everyone in my life, save my parents and my sister, now call me Simeon. Mm-hmm. Even if they knew me in the past, because for me, there was a clear divide between those two human beings. So it's been a it's been a, and a very interesting and unique experience and one I wouldn't trade for the world. And people often ask, you know, why did you why did you leave your really rather well paying, beautiful job as an evangelical pastor? And and don't get me wrong, I love that job and I love those people and I still walk with many of them to this day. But it was the truth of who Christ is, was and will be as a person, as a human being, and as the Son of God that drew me there. And it was the truth, the capital T truth, um, not, like I said, not as an intellectual assent or some, you know, uh, systematic formula that made the most sense. No, it was the intimacy of the relationship that was allowed. Yeah. That drew me. And then, you know, in some senses, that the uh, my baptism was a bit of a, nuptial arrangement um the church so that's how i go where i am and then i was ordained to the diaconate and in coming up here in a couple days march 16th 2018 yeah that's right i always remember because it's just short of saint patrick's day it's kind of right in between yesterday was saint Simeon's feast day and then saint patrick's day and I didn't get it on either one, so maybe that's a sign. But anyways, it's been a number of years now, and I've learned uh, much, and patience has been given much, and and so this is where I am. Hmm. So how how big of a a mental or a, or a heartfelt shift was it going from being the guy at the podium speaking at the congregation to being the guy standing at the back of the church as a catechumen? It was terrifying and life-giving and terrifying because not only did I, you know, speak at the front and then lead programs, but I baptized people. Mm. And even though I was in a place where I was moving and understanding what it meant for baptism to be part of the mysteries of the Orthodox Church, I was still part of a community that didn't adhere to that Hmm. and i was i was terrified that what i had done was something terrible i was blessed to have a priest that made allowed me to understand that i was doing the best that i could in the situation that i had known and i still work with those people today leaving the position of authority and becoming a lowly catechumen in the back was more difficult than i think i had assumed it to be at the beginning when we joined, you know, we have a fairly, we're like a middle of the road parish. We're not really big. We're not really small. We have a lot of families. I've had, a, I had had a lot of experience and leadership and program development and, and this sort of stuff. So I, in some ways, just sort of naturally assumed that those giftings would be called upon because that's kind of how it works in the evangelical world. You know, you, you know, you kind of get pulled out immediately to do to do something to create a program and develop something and so I had a desire to continue to do that and so it took 
I mean, it's a bit of a shock realizing that my job was essentially to stand in the back of the room and shut up, um, which was a really valuable, I, I would tell you, it was a really valuable learning experience because as one who spoke a lot, you know, in, <laughs> in church and, and, and that was my role to be told, you know, your, your responsibility here is to be quiet and to be molded uh, rather than to do any molding was the really positive side of humiliation, if I can make that analogy. There was, it was a realization that I was simply and beautifully part of this moving body and that I had to understand my position as part of that body and how long it would take, I wasn't quite prepared for. Um, I thought, okay, well, I'll get in and, and uh, maybe like two or three years and I'll attend seminary and then we'll, we'll be on the road. And, and I was wrong and I was thankful that I was wrong. Part of my, part of what allowed me to sort of absorb becoming a different human being was mm -hmm. that I was physically disabled before I, before we be, were baptized about six months before we were baptized, I had a septic infection in my knee. I was in the hospital for many weeks and, and I ended up coming out, not being able to hardly walk at all. Um, mm. and in a lot of pain, the blessing of which is, is that I was too tired and exhausted to tell anybody that I was Orthodox. Mm. Means I didn't proclaim my faith on the internet and tell everybody all of that sort of stuff. I, I was sort of in some ways forced by that limitation to focus on me and my own growth, which, you know, at the time I didn't understand. Um, but now years on, I, I can look back and say that period of, of pain produced a patient heart mm. or getting mm. there. I don't want to, you know, put myself too far ahead of, uh, of where I am, but, um, and I really was given, the Lord provided me the time and opportunity to learn my new identity, to learn the language of the liturgy, to participate in that relationship in a very physical way. It's remarkable that I was even able, like when I attended church, church was the only place my physical body felt comfortable. Everywhere mm -hmm. else, I felt like I was, the space was constraining me and it was painful just to be in physical space. Mm -hmm. In church, it was completely different. And I think I realized this my first, so my first uh, Pascha as a, well, my first Pascha as a catechumen, I was in the hospital. And then, so my second, when I was out, I was, I was able, like, I, I was like, I'm going to attend every single service, whether my body likes it or not. And I did the whole, I did all the services of Holy Week. And I, by the end, I was like, I'm so comfortable here in this space. My body just resonates with what's going on. And that very much affirmed in me that this was so much more than just thinking about my faith or yeah. rather I'd say about assuring my beliefs. And I've learned yeah. over time that faith and beliefs really are two different processes. So that period of time and and it, and it continues was a growing of this deep intimate dance that i was participating in 
with the body of Christ, with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, with the Mother of God and all the saints. And I was slowly learning the steps of that dance. So mm-hmm. that, it, you know, I, it, it's slowly getting to the point now where I don't have to think about where I am. I know where mm-hmm. I am. And in that, that in, it includes, you know, the, the act of sort of performing the liturgy, you know, as, mm-hmm. as, as I was ordained, served in the altar and then I was then to the diaconate and, and Lord willing to the priesthood in the, in the future. Um, I feel I'm getting to the place where I'm not performing, I'm participating. Mm. And that's a, that's a, it's a hard journey. There's no shortcuts, you know, uh, there's no hacks Mm. for growing in your relationship with Christ. It's a long, difficult journey of obedience and repentance. If, if anyone out there listening thinks, oh, I'm going to join the Orthodox Church and you know what's going to be, all of a sudden I'm going to be illuminated. I, Lord, if that happens, I wish you the best of luck. But my experience tells me that it is one small step forward over and over and over again. In, yeah. in that you are, you learn the language, the new language of your new humanity in the church. And it, it takes a while. You know, they say you can't really understand and, and know a language until you dream in it. And I would, you know, there's a lot of that in, in, in the way in which we learn our lives in the church, that we sort of learn the language on the page, we read the words of the liturgy, and we try and follow along. And if you've got kids, that is incredibly difficult. But slowly over time and commitment to that process, that language becomes your lingua franca. You speak liturgical words when you're not even in the liturgy. It makes you look a little bit strange, but that's okay. I'm a comfortable yeah. strange. So. Yeah, that's a little bit about it. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna take us from the the dance with the divine yeah. into the divine eros, which is today's topic. And generally speaking, people are usually kind of taken aback, even though divine eros is found in the scripture in something like a classic like Song of Songs yeah. or Song of Solomon. But let us take this to a bit of a patristic approach and, and maybe you can tell us a bit about what do the fathers mean when they speak about divine eros? So I think to start off the most important part that we need to do and we're considering the, the way that the church uses eros and the way that the fathers uh, use eros is we need to extricate ourselves a little bit from our context because it's so easy when we hear the word eros to hear the word erotic and then to think pornography there Mm -hmm. certainly is an element of physical activity within the idea of eros even especially in in the the ancient greek use of that term but even in the fathers we can't abandon that physicality eros is 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 desire in mind and in body as well but what we need to understand is it's not always and directly connected with the act of sexual intimacy and certainly not in the way that we the way that it works out in our modern culture where where sex is simply a biological activity for for pleasure you're also something that involves the entire human experience in this intimate dance uh and and desire with the lord Um, if you want a, a picture of it before we get into the fathers 
if you look up the great work, The da Dancers by Henri Matisse, um, mm. there's a fluidity and a dynamism to that that sort of explains, so it gives a, a visual representation, which, you know, is, is I think oftentimes very helpful for a lot of people to understand the nature of these sort of theological abstract concepts. Um, that is, of course, if you like Matisse, I mean, if you don't, whatever. But it is, it is a good sort of way of showing the fluidity and the dynamism that happens in Eros and the interconnectivity. You know, Eros and perichoresis are sort of, they, they can't really be pulled apart in the fathers. They're part of the same process. So if we go to someone like, well, let's start, we'll, we'll just pull out the big guns and we'll just go with that. In St. John Chrysostom's homily, the second homily on Eutropius, he he has a wonderful section on what God desires. And God desires, as he said, God desires a harlot rather than a virgin, right? And why does he do that? Because he wants the harlot to become the virgin. Now, how does he get the harlot to become the virgin? He becomes flesh, human flesh, and enters into a relationship with him. St. John Chrysostom says that God actually has intercourse with man. Which is very strong language. Um, and when he says intercourse there, he means the physical act of sexual copulation. Um, that his God's seed is implanted in man to produce man, the man God, the Theanthropos, right? Um, <laughs> language that I think is very hard for us to hear, but if you understand that this this eros idea, this desire for man is, is, is in God as much as it is in sort of us for our, for intimate relationships with our others, with our spouse mm -hmm. or with the, the other sex, that that's a, that natural desire to have sexual relationships, that desire exists also within the, within the Trinity itself. And that desire is extended to the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in, in perichoresis, but it's also the desire to be in relationship with creation. And I think sometimes we, we hear these words about how God's love works. We hear about agape, you know, this unconditional love, right? And we think, wow, you know, we as human beings need to have we unconditional love for each other. I'm sorry to break this to you, but it is impossible for human beings to love unconditionally. Mm -hmm. Primarily, first of all, because we are a condition rather than a cause. So our condition is we're created, and therefore we're always going to have conditions for our love. And this is not a bad thing. It is just reality. Mm -hmm. You know, and Phileo and, and Storge, the other Greek words, they have a multiplicity of meanings that cover a lot of relationships. Eros, I think, however is a way of understanding, a way of knowing God's love that is, that is our primary experiential reality. So yeah. that we experience God through Eros primarily, that our desire, and, and the fathers talk about, you know, our, our desire for God. So St. Maximus the Confessor, as a simple thought of human things does not force the mind to scorn the divine, so neither does the simple knowledge of divine things persuaded to scorn completely human things because the truth now exists in shadow and figures. Therefore, there is the need for the blessed passion of holy eros. It binds 
the mind to spiritual objects and persuades it to prefer the immaterial to the material, the intelligible and divine to the sensible. So mm -hmm. Eros is this, this gift that we receive from God that pushes us and motivates us to draw deeper into this relationship. And the reason why it's Eros, even though St. Maximus here speaks of, you know, to prefer the immaterial to the material, the intelligible and divine to the sensible, that vision is not a, in, in context, I don't think St. Maximus is telling us to ignore the material and the sensible. This would be a denial of the value of the incarnation. But that through Eros, Holy Eros allows us to, or, or it creates this desire in us to move past what our eyes allow us to see. So Eros in the sensible and the material, if we only sit there in desire, this is where we fall into pornea, right? Where we objectify the material and the sexual relationship. And we only see the physical pleasure involved in that. We don't see the connection between Eros and metanoia, right? As we enter into an erotic relationship with the Trinity, we are transfigured. We become a partner. We become part, we, we, there's a nuptial arrangement, there's a wedding bed. And, and that wedding bed really, you know, is, is experienced within the liturgical life of the church. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Eros, when we think erotic and we think that type of language and we think about sexual activity, we're often thinking just two individuals. In the church, Eros is our communal activity together. And we participate in a rather interesting marriage bed where mm -hmm. Christ is there and the church, which includes all of us, is there. And we are mystically unified through this act of, I mean, even interpenetration, which is sort of the, the translation of perichoresis, has this sexual imagery to it. And... Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that the reason why that's important is because it does connect us with our physical relationship, our physical entwining with God as well. And, and you know, to quote St. Simeon, my soul is utterly beside herself, which is already an interesting statement um, that we can talk more about the controversy of that later, perhaps. And all the more astonished at your goodness and benevolence, because you purify defiled souls and enlighten the mind and you grasp the earthly and material essence, and you kindle a large flame of divine affection. So a, a large flame of divine affection is eros. Mm -hmm. And like a fire, you cast me into a passionate love of divine longing. To remember that it's not simply our eros to God, but that God himself possesses eros for humanity, and eros for us is important. Mm -hmm. There is this constant interaction and i think even to understand that god's eros affects the entire universe that god's physical desire now yeah because god is not human and not a physical being i don't mean physical in the sense of like materialism but this <laughs> very tangible feelable is not a word but this uh, experience of god's essence that is that is unknowable but knowable. There is God's erotic interaction with 
all the material of the universe with the plants and the trees and and I think this is what St. Paul is talking about in Romans when he talks mm-hmm. about how God's God is knowable through creation because we can see and feel God's love, God's active desire for relationship um, through creation. And if we don't acknowledge that, when we don't, when we fall away from that, and we, St. Paul says that we, we uh, enter into a base mind, we become animalistic. Mm-hmm. This is, it has to be understood very, and I don't want to make this clear, that it's very easy to slip into some strange view of God as being, you know, and, and over-sexualizing this imagery. Um, mm-hmm. Because just simply because of how oversexed we are and how we tend to sexualize all relationships. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, you know, two men having a deep, intimate friendship together is seen as, you know, when, when those things are revealed in many different narratives, um, take Don, David and Jonathan, for instance, um, our culture tends to sex, want to sexualize that relationship because it's an intimate relationship between two men. Consider when, when in many uh, Southeast Asian um, countries and communities, two women holding hands together and being physically intimate is pretty normal activity. And yet our culture looks at that and says, oh, they must be, uh, they must be in- physically intimate with each other because we've created this environment where human beings are not allowed to be physically intimate without thinking about sex. Mm-hmm. And the church, in some senses, has lost its, it, this, the, the answer to that question. That yes, you know, physical intimacy is a beautiful, natural desire of human beings. And it is fully realized and experienced to its fullness within the context of the church. Where our physical desire, our desire for spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy, all of those things are realized and fulfilled in our liturgical experience, in the the common cup. So when we participate in the liturgy, we are participating in an erotic activity. Mm -hmm. It begins with the kiss of peace after all. Yes, right? And and not the holy handshake. Yeah. And I think it's, 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 it's high time that the church recover and offer again, you know, we, we're really good at offering healing to your sort of spiritual life. But I think in some sense, we've, we've lost the robust, well, we've lost the robustness and the forthrightness of the fathers to say, not only is your spirit healed and your emotion, but your physical desire to have sex is purified in the church, if you allow it, just like everything else. To listen to the rest of this interview, visit www.patreon.com slash humanityvivified. As Father Deacon Simeon and I further discuss Divine Eros, Song of Songs, teaching our children about sexuality, and other related topics. May God bless you.